birds, people, and the dogs to bring them together. This is episode number three. My name is Bill, and you're tied to the woe post. Before we start this episode, I have to apologize for the audio quality in the previous episode. I tried something new to try to save some disk space, and it just didn't work out. We got it fixed for this week, though, and we won't let it happen again. We're partnering with Embark for this episode. Embark has a research-grade genotyping platform built and run by the world's top canine geneticists. Their products include the Breed Plus Health DNA Test, the Purebred DNA Test, the Gut Health Test, the Oral Health Test, the Breed Identification DNA Test, which is a favorite of mutt or adopted dog owners, and the Breeder Kit which is meant for breeders rather than consumers, and it includes multi-pack discounts available. That's what Michelle and I are going to talk about here in this episode. The Breed Plus Health tests cover over 230 health risks. They analyze over 230,000 genetic markers, and they cover over 350 breeds, types, and varieties, which is way more than the competition. And it even includes wolves, coyotes, and village dog ancestry. I don't know what a village dog is, but if you know, hit me up on Facebook or Instagram at the Woe Post, or shoot me an email, bill at thewopost.com, and school me up. Let me know what it is. Embark has the only canine DNA relative finder, another favorite of adopted dogs. They include a detailed report that you can share with your vet in order to provide the best care possible for your dog. If you're interested, I'll have an affiliate link in the description. It gives me a small payment and helps to build the show and maybe improve the audio quality. Another way you can help the show is to become a patron at patreon.com slash the post. I have one $3 tier on there and every dollar from a partner or a patron goes directly into improving the quality of the show. Today we're talking to Michelle Wilbers, co-owner of Brushdale Kennel in Maquoketa, Iowa. Brushdale is the producer of the finest small Munsterlanders available, or at least I think so, because that's where I got skeet from. Michelle, how you doing? Pretty good. Awesome. Thank Thanks for being here. I, I appreciate the invitation. Great, great. Um, so with every podcast, we like to start off with a lightning round of some three icebreaker questions. So get ready and just you can just answer the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? That could be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope not. It's got to be G-rated. <laughs> okay. What is your favorite dog training book? Oh, my gosh. I do. I honestly do not have a favorite. I have favorite. I have so many different ones for different things. Sure. Depends on what we're working on. Not okay. only that, but things that I thought were were favorites in the past. I've sort of moved on, grown. Oh, really? Changed. You know, that's interesting. And actually, so when I was talking with uh, with Dave Stover last week, you know, he made a comment about just some outdated training techniques. Uh, And really, we we were talking about a a dog that he has in the kennel, a client dog that he has in the kennel right now. That's a gun shy dog. And he's trying to work that dog out of that and into being a productive hunting sporting dog. Um, and we were talking about some of the very outdated ways of introducing a dog to gunfire. And um, and he made the comment of people referencing books that are 60, 70 years old, oh, how to do that. Yeah. Or, you know, grandpa just taking the dog 
to to the range and sitting the dog in the truck while you know gunfire is going off and the dog has nothing to do but think about gunfire instead of maybe having some other motivating thing going on in their life where the gunfire is just kind of this thing that happens in the background right oh exactly oh there's some absolutely um horrific training advice out there sure some but there's some there's some old training advice that's still good and still relevant but we've learned a lot more about dogs recently than we knew before about how they think how they learn uh i just there's a lot of trainers that i i find they don't adapt uh, they don't keep researching keep looking for new and different ways they they do what works for them what has for, worked for them in the past my other big complaint would be that they don't modify the way they train for each dog as each dog's an individual, they all have different temperaments and so forth. And you can't train them all exactly the same way, but a lot of trainers try. Right. Everybody, you know, it seems like trainers have their system, right? Oh, in my mm-hmm. system, this is what I do. And I mean, I'm not a trainer. I'm, I'm learning about training. I think I'm a better trainer than I was a year ago. Um, And certainly better than I was, you know, five years ago when I got my first bird dog. Um, But I'm almost a little bit tired of hearing in my system, this is how it works. And I always think, well, that's what works for you as a trainer for the dogs that you train. But it doesn't mean that it's going to work for every dog. And it might not work for another trainer's personality. Exactly. Every owner, every trainer, every dog, it's all different. You can't, it'd be like treating, treating all of your children exactly the same, teaching them all exactly the same way. They all have personalities. No two dogs are this, even siblings from the same litter, very different dogs. And they come, if you're training, they come to you too, having a whole different environment. They're, they all are raised differently by different people. So I, I don't think that that's a good system at all. Right. No, I, I agree. I, I, think. I, I also don't claim to be an expert trainer. That isn't what I do for a living. I help an awful lot of people with training, but I don't. I wouldn't call myself a trainer, a professional trainer, an expert trainer. I'm still learning too. I learn sure. all the time. Right. Make mistakes, try to fix them, do better. I'm I'm way better than I was years ago. More patient for one thing. <laughs> Absolutely. I actually think that becoming a better dog trainer has made me a better parent. Um, and especially with Skeet, with a dog that's as cooperative as she she is, and you know the eye contact from her is nonstop. She is absolutely in tune with her handler, um, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what is this guy trying to tell me to do. If this guy was a little bit smarter, I would just do what he wants me to do, right? Um, and that's made me an infinitely more patient person um, than I was, you know, two years ago before I got Skeet. Oh, definitely. Sounds like she's great talk. She's she's awesome. Meet her in person. Oh, absolutely. Soon. Yep. Yeah. Uh, next weekend, right? This coming weekend. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. This coming weekend, right? 
Well, a book that you recommended to to me before getting skied, I'm going to turn around and hopefully I don't lose audio real quick. So Joan Bailey's book, How to Help Gun Dogs Train Themselves. I almost said that one because it's it's timeless. There are some things in there that I do differently. And I point those out. I point those out to all my puppy buyers, the things that I, I would do differently. But it's still good advice. And the reason I bring that one out is I want the puppy buyers to know that this is easy. This doesn't have to be hard. This can be right. fun. Well, absolutely. Anybody I think there's the methodology that Bailey puts forth, I think, is solid. I think there are some tactics within the methodology that I think I do a little bit differently that I'm sure you do a lot differently. Um, sure. But it, I don't think it changes the methodology that she's promoting in the book. I agree, hundred percent. And then the the checklists at the end of the book, I think you know, I mean, there there's some timing associated with those. Um, but in the um, yeah informal schedule for pup, um, you know, it, it assumes pup is born a certain time of the year, and you know, yeah, average pup born on April first. Well, that's a great scenario to be in um doesn't work for the other you know 11 months out of the year um <laughs> but it is still a really good reference of kind of where should i be before i hunt this dog and then what should my expectations be in my first hunting season it's helpful absolutely all right well that was a long first icebreaker question right there oh yeah sorry Okay, the next one's going to be a tough one for you. I'm going to apologize in advance. Specific to small monster landers, roan versus brown and white. What's your favorite? I prefer dark dogs. Okay. Are you asking? Are you asking me what I what I find attractive? Sure. Just personally, what what do you like better? Dark dogs. Okay. Gotcha. So it doesn't matter. So it doesn't need to be roan. If a dog has more brown than white, you're on board with that too. Right. If you come to my house right now, you'd see that most of my dogs are fully caped. Right. Right. Yep. Okay. And yeah, Skeet and I, is pretty much fully caped. Yeah. And I get that with every litter now because it's a dominant trait. So I get mm -hmm. there's always some puppies that look like that. I find that attractive. It's pretty. I, I like how it looks. But as far as, um, what color is best to hunt with? Hands down, the whiter <laughs> dogs. <laughs> yeah. They're easier to see. Easier to see. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for me, I think the waterfowler in me wants a darker dog, a little bit easier to conceal. And my dog, when I'm waterfowl hunting, you know, I'm unless it goes out to chase a cripple or something like that, it's just... You know, it's within 50, 60 yards of me most of the time, right out in front in the decoy, swimming around. When I first reached out to you for a puppy, you know, over two years ago now, I originally wanted a roan dog. And for that purpose, for the, for the purpose of waterfowl hunting, now, I don't know if I want a roan dog. I mean, I do want a roan dog. I want a different <laughs> dog than what I already have. But I've seen a lot of roan dogs that I find to be less visually appealing than the majority of the brown and white dogs that I see. 
I can, I think I can understand that. You know, when I get contacted, um, the grouse hunters want the whitest puppy they can find. Right. And the waterfowlers want the ticked puppies. That That's what they'll say, ticked. They mean roan. Right. Traditional roan. Gotcha. That's it. So I think it depends on what you hunt a lot. But what I find, you know, visually what I like are the darker colored dogs. They they just sleek and shiny, beautiful. That yeah. I, I can I I'm not that fussy, honestly. And the truth is the very last thing you should consider in choosing a puppy is what color it is. That's the last thing you should worry about. I think, yeah, I mean, and I, I absolutely know what you're saying there as far as, you know, the 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 health of the puppy, the, the the pedigree of the puppy, you know, what the the puppy that you should be getting out of that should match, you know, the the handler, the the owner, the hunter, a very small part of that is appearance. You should never choose a puppy that you think is ugly. So okay. that's where I was going with that was okay. <laughs> that's that's and, where I was going to say if you don't I, like I your think, dog then <laughs> I think that's right in in my emails too but never pick one that you think is ugly because you'll never that could that dog could be the smartest most talented most wonderful best temperament dog in the entire planet but if you think it's ugly that dog has no chance of being your once in a lifetime dog right just doesn't doesn't because uh, we're human, we like things better that we find attractive. Yep, yep. Okay, we are on so, the same sheet of paper there. So don't pick a dog you find is ugly, but otherwise, as long as you think it's at least somewhat cute, you'll be fine. Sure, <laughs> and the, there are other things that are more important, right? Exactly, far yep. more, far more important. Right. Okay. Last question. And I know you don't get a whole lot of time to get out and hunt, but if you could pick only one animal to hunt for the rest of your life, what it would it be? You mean bird-wise? It has to be specific. You can't, the, you can't just say upland birds. That's not fair, right? So you, are you talking about the prey? Yes. Okay. Pheasants, for sure. Oh, all right. So that's two weeks in a row we got pheasants. Why do you say pheasants? Well, for me, they're bigger and easier to shoot. <laughs> 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 a terrible terrible shot i i just i i i just think they're fascinating uh their behavior they're tricky they're fun they're a lot of fun they're beautiful absolutely beautiful birds there's nothing prettier than a big colorful rooster with a long tail can't can't beat it you just can't beat it no, I, I agree. I, I mean, they obviously, they are the prettiest of the upland birds. Some would argue that's a subjective opinion. It's hard to argue that to me, though. What I else managed... has the colors? What else, what else has the colors? Nothing. Nothing. Right. Nothing. Right. Oh, they're just, they, there's iridescent blues and purples. And I mean, they're, they're just greens. They, there's every color in there. They're just beautiful birds. Yep. Yep. I agree. And I managed to get a wild Indiana pheasant last year. Uh, didn't get an Indiana pheasant this year. Um, but, um, I, I mean, I, getting an Indiana pheasant is, it's almost like 
you know, killing a bull elk with a bow in, <laughs> you know, in Colorado or something. It's just not the Sir. easiest thing to do. There aren't a lot of wild pheasants there aren't here. Any. No. no. And and access to the few that are here is not always easy. Um so two seasons ago I managed to get one. This year I hunted wild pheasants in Indiana twice. Um and I think I only got one shot off over the two days and it was a, I mean, it was, I would have felt guilty if it was a goose shooting that far. Um, it would have been, you know, sky blasting oh. or whatever. It was just a shot in the dark and obviously missed, um, that same bird, my buddy Dave managed to, he managed to get it, um, but it flew right oh. past him. So. You know, good for him. Nice. It was a big, big rooster too. Nice. Uh, okay. All those hours for your dog and 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 nothing. Well, no, no, no. That's the, so. Yes, <laughs> for Indiana. Um, but we hunted North Dakota, Wisconsin, um, a little bit of South Dakota, Pennsylvania, of course, here in Indiana. Um, yeah, we hunted five states. So, and we're going to head out to the, uh, Munster fun hunt for the last day. So we'll get some, you know, some of the, the put and take birds out at your place. That'll be our last, probably our last hunt of the, of, uh, of the 23, 24 season. Well, it's going to get real warm real soon. So, right. Right. And honestly, we've already gotten to the point where we're really not focused on hunting anymore. And we've kind of rewound the training clock a little bit and getting back to basics and some things. I mean, I'm working steadiness in the yard right now, just really just, just woe training, um, mm -hmm. it, you know, in the yard, reintroducing some of the discipline that I probably let both of the dogs get away with or lapse a little bit on um, over the hunting season. Everyone does that hunting yep. and hunting and testing and training all two different things. Yep. You know, absolutely. Yep. All right. Well, you survived the lightning round. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about Brushdale Kennel? Well, we're located in far Eastern Iowa on my family farm from my mom's side and fourth generation here. Uh, the farm in total is 540 acres. 200 of that is timber. We have a natural trout screen, stream, Brush Creek, that flows through the meadows. A lot of people want to know where the name comes from, Brushdale. Okay. So the brush comes from Brush Creek, which is the trout stream that runs through the middle of the property. Right. And the dale comes on the far south end of the property is an old metal stagecoach bridge that's called the Fountaindale Bridge. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. Well, that's so that's cool. that's where, where Brushdale comes. Uh, we also have a marker on the farm. Iowa's first governor's home was here on the property. I think you showed me that when I was there, didn't you? I I don't know. It's you you really can't read it anymore. It's just a 
square piece of rock, basically. Right. That they right. had some carvings on. When I was a kid, I used to, you know, take the crayons and the paper out and, and see if I couldn't try to make out exactly what it said. But that's just pretty funny. That's little, cool. That's how long that's how long this place has been here, you know, long time. I didn't know you grew up on the property. I did not. My my dad is a banker. Oh, okay. I grew up in town. We moved out we moved out here about uh 15 years ago help my parents are aging um they moved here when my dad retired so okay nope nobody they they did not farm the property my dad took it out of farming and put everything back to nature trying to put everything back the way it was originally the creeks uh, i think he's addicted to pond building we just Put in two more ponds just this last summer and fall. Uh, specific, wow. That was actually a dream of mine. Where this is, I had this. I had this big dream of this awesome marsh type pond for dogs, of course, for utility work, duck search training. Uh, five years ago, when I brought it up, I got the big no. We are not spending that kind of money. For dog training, and then, then last year he, he took me out in the bobcat and said, "I have a surprise for you. So we're gonna we're gonna do your project." Uh, he didn't do just my project; he made it twice as big as what I had wanted. So it's not just one now; it's two gigantic ponds, about four and a half, five acres worth. That's awesome. Pond. That's perfect for duck search too. I had them build two islands right. in my duck search pond. Yeah, it's yep. going to be great when it gets full of water and we get all the new plantings in there. I can hardly wait. That's awesome. That's yep. That's got to be pretty exciting. It, it's, it's nonstop one project after another, fixing, changing, making things better, nicer, kind of never ends. It's a little paradise for us. Oh, hopefully a, we can keep it this way. It's a beautiful property. I know when we we walked around it, it's not um, your typical hunting preserve that's just flat, you know, rectangular fields with nope. with some, you know, mixed cover and some no hedgerows stretch. separating fields or anything like that. I mean, yours is, it's about as wild as it gets and it's, you know, beautiful, you know, rolling hills and, and everything. And I remember the pond, I know both. You both dogs love the pond because it was a little warm the day we were walking around. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, just, just an awesome property. I remember you were talking about being able to sit on one of the hills on one of the hilltops and watch the pheasant hunters go, yeah. you know, hunt with their dogs, watch the dogs quarter point and flush birds. It's fun to see what, what the pheasants do too. You can often see the pheasants scoot behind and down the path. They're, they're sneak. They're sneaky. I tell you what. Uh, so when when they hunt, we only have three fields. Primarily, we use it's one two hundred acre field that we have split in half. So when people are out there, they're out in a hundred acres. We have to send people out with little maps now because <laughs> we get I get phone calls from people out there turned around and can't find their way back to the buildings and. 
I would try to describe where the birds were released so they didn't completely hunt in the wrong area. And they would get all turned around and they'd spend two hours out there hunting where we didn't put any birds. Oh, wow. You know, come back with nothing. So now everybody leaves with the map with X's on it where the <laughs> birds were released, which is kind of crazy for a hunting preserve, but you ha- it's what we have to do. I've never been lost on a preserve before, but I could see potentially, if you're not paying attention, getting turned around on your property because there is enough micro terrain that if you're not willing to hike up to one of the hilltops and look around, if you're down on a low ground, you you could probably get turned around, I think. Yep, you get over the hill, you can't see the buildings, you can't see the silo, you have no idea which way to go. Exactly. Yeah. No, it, it it got it just got to the point where we have to do something about this. People hunting in the wrong place, people calling me from the field that they they don't know how to get back to the barn. So they have a map now. You almost need a bunch of those little pavilions with the area maps on it with the little X that says you are here. <laughs> exactly. We put benches out too. I well, I did see some of the benches. I bet some of the people use them. Yes, they do. I bet they, they don't tell you that they use them, but I bet they do. I needed a bench. You got to have someplace to sit down <laughs> when you need to adjust your boots and so forth. I don't want to sit on the ground in the snow, in the cold. Nope. Sure. Do you guys so, still have snow there right now? No. Although, under the trees, there are still some piles of snow. When we were out today, uh, the dogs were eating it because they were thirsty. Yep. We um we got about five inches on this past Friday night, um, and it hung out for the weekend, and now most of it's gone. Well, we must have been earlier that day that we got just a little bit, just a tiny bit of snow. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so how long have you been breeding dogs, or bird dogs, I should ask? Almost 25 years total. 25 years. And has it always been small Munsterlanders? No. The first dogs I ever bred were German short-haired pointers. Okay. Short-haired. And what Actually, made you... the first thing I ever bred were Persian cats. Persian cats. <laughs> well, I'm first glad you stopped breeding Persian cats. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you started breeding dogs. Um, what made you switch from short hairs to small monsterlanders? Finding the the monsterlanders was by accident. I was actually looking. I was doing some research on upcoming short hair litters. We we had a tragedy, and two year old female was poisoned and died. Oh, wow! That's horrible. It, it was it was a it was a really a, a freak thing farm farm related freak thing pink right so i was researching i think i i think i googled pointers and an ad came up for a small monsterlander pointer of course i'd never heard of it I, so i was just curious it was for it was for gosh kennels sioux city iowa so I, I just looked I just looked into it to see what they were and I, I saw the pictures and I thought they were pretty and read a little bit more about them. And the more I read, the more I thought, 
you know, this could be great. The truth was, we were getting a little tired of, we are getting older, and the chasing after the short hairs was getting to be a challenge. And most of all, I really wanted a dog that we could hunt with, but I could also snuggle on the couch with and they could sleep in the bed with me. Right. I really, I really wanted both. And what I was reading was saying that's what they were. Now, the truth is we believed maybe 50% of what we read. We thought if they were half as good as what we're reading, and I called around and talked to the breeders in Iowa, and I asked for referrals, and I talked to a couple people that own dogs. But we were very skeptical. We had never seen, never known a versatile hunting dog that was calm in the house. (laughs) You know, they're all pretty high strung. So calm in the house, I guess that's a relative thing too. Depends on what you, and I mean, not as a 10 year old dog, (laughs) as a, as a puppy, as a one year old for the whole time. Um, Honestly, we, we didn't really believe it all, but we figured, well, if they're half as good as what people are saying, this might really work for us. Maybe we should give it. A, we should give it a go. Now you have to also remember that these dogs are very co- expensive compared to short hairs. Oh, they are. Yes. And at the time, you know, we we're not wealthy people, so it was a lot of money to put out for a puppy, especially for a breed that we had never seen one of these dogs in real life. We're just taking it on what we read and what we heard talking to people but we figured i said okay we'll get a female we'll we'll raise her we'll train her worst worst case scenario we sell her as a started dog and we'll we'll recoup everything we put into her so we decided to give it a whirl um went out i I actually answered that ad called Gosh Kennels. They had one female puppy left. So I picked her up during a snowstorm in town out of the back of their truck. They had to meet me in town because I couldn't get down the road to their farm. The only <laughs> female they had. And and I left with her. And that's how the whole thing started. Wow. She amazed me right away. I had when I went and picked up short hair puppies, I had to put them in crates because they would be on the dash. They'd be behind my neck. They'd be <laughs> under my feet. You you know, you couldn't ride home in the vehicle with these little puppies loose. This puppy sat on the armrest in the, in the front seat of the truck for seven hours and slept. I always thought something was wrong with her. Yeah. No, I remember when I picked up Skeet at your kennel and drove the, I don't know, six, seven, eight hours back to central Indiana. Um, it was the same thing. She she rolled up in a little ball on the passenger seat right next to me and slept there the whole time. And, you know, I just know that after about an hour of driving, she'd kind of get up and start looking at me and I'd say, oh, need to find a rest area quick. And I'd you know, find a place to pull off safely and get her out on the leash and she'd pee and 
walk around and sniff stuff for a little bit. I'd get her back in the in the car and back on the road, and she'd be right back to sleep. I made one stop to get gas, and I had to wake the puppy up to take her out. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, that was the experience. And every puppy I purchased thereafter was exactly the same way. So it wasn't just her. That was what we discovered, you know. After we got Katie and had her for a little while, then we decided to get Anna, the second. And then we decided to sell the short hairs. (laughs) So, and, and those were your first two breeding females? Yes. I actually purchased a female that I hope to breed from every breeder in the state of Iowa, but only two of the five worked out. Okay. And was that because of your own internal culling process or was that, was there something else there? They just weren't high enough quality uh, structurally for breeding, in my opinion. Right. Right. My first, Katie, my first, she honestly, she wasn't much to look at either. She just barely made the grade that that way. But her temperament was amazing. Nice. And with the monsters, I mean, the monsters are all temperament. I do think that that's, aside from being a small dog with a big motor and certainly the prettiest of all the versatile dogs, um, it's the temperament that separates them from a lot of the other dogs out there. It's a very, very, it is the most important thing about them. It's the most important feature. When I decided on a small monster lander, so I knew I wanted a versatile hunting dog because I was interested in the format behind the Navda testing system. Um, at the time, probably because I wasn't very well informed on it. I wasn't interested in um, any of the AKC hunt tests. I'm kind of coming a little, I'm coming around on that now. And I actually will put some AKC titles on Skeet um, as soon as, as soon as we can get her uh, fully registered. But um, at the time with what I knew and what I thought, I thought I was like, I said, no, I'm only going to do this Navda testing system so i said okay well that breaks it down to 34 breeds and from there was just a lot of research and a lot of online and talking to anybody that i could um about the dogs trying to see as many of the dogs as i as i could but it didn't take long for me to to get small monster lander on the top of the list and it just never came off the top of the list once it was up there and frankly i prefer smaller dogs anyway um maintenance wise they are so much easier um than than a big dog um you know you know i don't let my dogs jump off of the tailgate because i hear so many times about dogs getting injured from jumping off the tailgate of a truck these dogs will tear through the woods tear through the fields jumping over logs over under and through all sorts of all of obstacles um and not get injured but jumping off of a truck tailgate they they hurt themselves. So I always say, all right, I'm just going to take my dog off the tailgate. They can jump back up, but um, I don't want to lift a 70 or 80 pound dog off the tailgate. If I don't have to, if I can lift a 45 pound dog off the tailgate, I'm fine with that. 
Yeah, I can lift my dogs over fences and things, which is, it's helpful. And if I had to, I could carry them a distance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm not, I'm little, I'm a little person, so. Right, right. No, I, I like little dogs. I think, you know, there have been, there have been some covers where Skeet was just not a strong enough dog. I mean, and I'm talking really heavy pheasant cover um, mm-hmm. where she's trying to break brush out in front of me. And after probably a half hour or an hour of really just me walking through the brush faster than she could, she eventually circled around and she's just following the trail um, that I made. But at the time she was about a year and a half, maybe just a little bit over a year and a half old. Um, so not a fully grown strong dog yet. Um, and it's very anecdotal for the style of hunting that I do. Uh, It's just not something that we do all the time. Um, so it doesn't bother me that, you know, my buddy's bigger flushing lab is able to break through that cover without getting completely smoked. And, and my dog wasn't able to do it. Um, you know, and, and maybe, when my dog is three or four years old, she would be able, she'd be a lot more competent in that thick vegetation. Maybe we have to see. Right. Or maybe I just don't need to be hunting that. Take the lab with you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just hunt over my buddy's dog. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> well, I've also got uh moose, the, the adopted poodle flusher over here. I, I call him the poodle flusher <laughs> because there's no point in this poodle pointer. Um, and uh and he's a big strong dog he's he's about 70 pounds and he's all leg um and that's and a he, big poodle that's a big poodle pointer he's a, he's a big boy um you know he's an unknown pedigree adopted dog his tail is not even docked um oh. just a real oddball of a dog um and like i said won't point um i got him from the national german wire hair pointer rescue when he was a year old um, I'm gonna, I'm not going to get into the whole process behind this dog because that's a podcast in and of itself. It's at least an hour long story of everything that we had to help this dog work through. Um, but, um, where he is now treating him as a flusher or as a retriever, he's the perfect dog for that. Then that's what he should do. Exactly. Exactly. Nothing wrong with that at all. Nope. Nope. And he's my buddy and he's Skeet's buddy too. They're curled up together on the floor down to my right over here. Just racked out. Puppy I was out with today was a poodle pointer. Right on. I've seen a lot of great poodle pointers. Yeah. I think they're getting more common faster than a lot of the other versatile breeds. I see a lot of them. Yep. Testing at the test, the spring test. We see a lot of them in Navda. Uh, I have a guide, one of our regular guides runs two poodle pointers and they're really good, really good dogs. Yep. There are some great poodle pointers out there. I still have not seen another small monster lander besides at your kennel. Really? I've not, I've not seen one. I've seen a large monster lander. Um, and there's another member of the club, the conservation club 
where we train at that has a small monster lander, but I haven't seen, I've seen him, but I haven't seen him with his dog out on the field yet. So I've got to link up with him so we can get our dogs together. So I can just prove that, yeah, there, there are other small monster landers out there besides here in Maquoketa, Iowa. I will be at Pheasant Fest um, at the Small Monster Lander Club booth. So I, I'm pretty sure we'll see some other monsters there. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. That's nice for doing that. I've done that several times. Have you? I think it should be fun. I, I wish I could get out there for the puppy parade. But uh, my buddy Dave and I are going out there together, and we are not able to leave until early Friday morning. And it's about 11 hours for us to get out there, so we're just not yeah. going to make it out there for the parade. And I'm a little bit disappointed about that. I think the parade would be really fun, but it's just not going to work out. We'll still have, you know, Dave will be working in the Inukshuk booth. Uh, he's a he's an affiliate of theirs. And I'll be at the SMCA booth for Friday evening and all day Saturday and probably the first half of Sunday. That should be fun, I think. So you're about to flip the alphabet for a second time. So you're going yep. on litter number 53 here in a few months. Triple A. Triple A. I've never talked to another breeder that's gone that's hit their triple a litter i don't know if that's good or bad <laughs> <laughs> do you think so are you the biggest small monster lander breeder in the u.s i don't think so but i don't know because i don't i just i pretty much mind my own business honestly i don't know i i have no idea how many litters other breeders are having per year or how many they've had or how many years they've been in business to know Sure. I really don't know. I don't I don't pay attention in that respect. Sure. Yeah. I have I looked up some some information. I've had 50 litters. Some of those have one puppy. Right. The biggest was 11. <sighs> I have 341 different puppy owners. Now, 341. Some of those have multiple dogs. I have puppy owners now that I've sold a fourth dog to. Four dogs to that's the same how owner. That's how long I've, I've been at. I've been doing this 17 years with Monsterlanders. So I've sold some people their fourth dog. And they get their big discount. <laughs> <laughs> I think they almost, <laughs> looking at the way you do discounts, they almost get them for free at that point. 40%. <laughs> That's why they keep coming back. <laughs> for the discount, yeah. Right. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to go to somebody else and pay full price at this point. <laughs> well, only only if you didn't like your first dog, I guess. Um, right. Hopefully they're happy, so... Well, I think they are. And, you know, I've mentioned to a few other people, and I know you have, you and I have talked about it. So if you look at the small monster landers that have passed the Navda Invitational over the last two years, both of 
the SMs were males from your kennel. Yes. The recent, these are from my kennel, yes. And I only looked back as far as two years. Um, I don't know. Have you had any VCs before that? No, those are the first two. Jackson's going to run this year. Right. He, Tito, got his VC last year. Um, Tito and Jackson are full brothers from the same litter. Okay. So I think I'll have the first brother VCs for small monsterlanders. Is Jackson owned? <laughs> Provided he passes. <laughs> Right. Well, and it's the invitational, so you never know what could happen. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of variables there. And I think just going to the invitational, though, is pretty respectable. The amount of work that it takes to get there. Frankly, oh, I think ab- having, absolutely. A, having a UT prize one dog is pretty darn respectable. Any UT prize is fantastic work. Exactly. So I'm, Hopefully, I'm not jinxing it for Jason. This will be a second run at it, and usually it takes twice. Most most don't pass the first try, their first invitational run. Um, and he feels really good about it. So his and his dog's very capable. So I I have every reason to believe that I will have brother VCs here at the end of the year. But back and- on wood. Jackson is my dog's sire, right? Yes. Yes. So I'm pulling for him too, because I would love to have that VC one generation back on Skeet's pedigree. <laughs> Absolutely. So we'll be cheering Very from him. Nice dog. We'll be cheering from central Indiana here. Actually, I may go out to the invitational this year just to to volunteer and to observe. Um, I'm very interested in seeing, number one, the interaction between the handler and the dog, because that's a very high level of training uh, and a very high level of cooperation to get there. So I really want to see that. And frankly, I just really want to see how the test is run. Definitely go. It's in Iowa for sure. Is it? Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a trip I'm going to have to schedule. Um, how many of your small monster landers do you have in your kennel now? I have seven dogs at home right now. Seven. And, and these, because I know and you had a, um, another male that you, that you're getting ready to breed to one of your females. Is that right? Well, there's a little male from the XX litter here. Is that what you mean? Maybe that's what I was thinking of. I know you have a dog that is supposed to it's somebody else's dog or is supposed to go to somebody else it's jason okay jason the owner of your dogs of jackson right. jason munson okay i repeated qq for xx qq's okay. your dogs right i repeat it okay jason kept a puppy so he has the the pick mail from this litter the sure. xx litter okay and that's that dog's name is Jet, and he's at my house right now. Gotcha. For the week. He's okay. 10 weeks, he's 10 weeks old. So at the moment, I sleep with eight dogs. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I I know 
believe me, I know how crazy that sounds. It, it, even to me, I take pictures of it. It's so crazy. It <laughs> is like the, 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 the bed instead of blankets, it is a blanket of Munsterlanders. They just completely cover the thing. And Mark and I have a little sliver along the edges, you know. <laughs> I bet you never get cold, though, do you? <laughs> no, but you get hot, I tell you. No, I bet. I tell you what. No, I can't. But... Um, I can't sit on the floor if we're watching television as a family. I can't sit on the floor for long because Skeet will be over and and she'll cuddle. And I love to cuddle with her and everything, but um, I have to keep it in small doses. And I'll send her to her place after she gets some some loving from dad. I I haven't been able to sit on the floor of my house for a very long time. Is <laughs> <laughs> it it would be a swarm if I sit on the floor. I it's more love than one person can possibly handle and they you know they they're very competitive about it too. So oh, they yes. all want to be the closest and they all want to be in my face and I, <laughs> yeah. So we we don't sit on the floor anymore. Too too many. Sure. And a lot of the dogs are young now. So the oldest is is Katie. She's ten. She's spayed. Mm-hmm. We tried uh, to put her in a retirement home. It didn't take. She just she didn't like. She had never been alone. So the first time they left the house and she was alone there, she went kind of nuts and tried to claw her way out the back door. Oh, wow. She returned home and she's she's just going to stay here with us. Right. That sounds like the best place for her. She needs to be around the other, all the other dogs. Yeah, she, uh, we had a, she had a, a, a horrible thing go wrong with her last litter and she almost died. She went septic and nearly died. She was very, very sick. The vet didn't think she'd live, but I pulled her through that one. Sure. Oh, good. She's all white. She just, she never sort of seemed quite right after that. I don't know how to describe it. Like mentally. And she's very attached to me. So, she just needs to stay here. She's she's as happy as she can be here, I think. Sounds like the best place for her. I don't think she'll be happy anywhere else. And um, then the next oldest would be Grace, who is seven. But a lot of these dogs are young. I'm going to run two dogs in natural ability. I've got a the two youngest are four months old and eight months old. So I'll run those two. Then we have um, the one that's going to the show. She's 16 months old. We have a two-year-old. Anyway, they're mostly young. Sure. You've got a lot of young blood in the kennel then. Right. I lost Hazel just just a few days before her fourth birthday. And it, it really, it sort of messed things up as far as having the four breeding dogs. So I, right. I've only had three for this whole year and we'll only have three for two years instead of four. Oh wow. You you have to you know you constantly have to bring new dogs into the kennel and raise them up. Um 
they all, every dog that I keep does not work out. Right. So you have to keep bringing them in and raising them up to a certain point before you know whether they're going to be permanent or not. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and not to harp on the, on the testing stuff, but the testing is very important to me because I feel like it's the only objective way to measure hunting skills. And that's why we have these dogs is to hunt. So while I was looking through the invitational results over the last two years, I actually looked through all of the small monster lander results over the last two years and I didn't count them all, but I noticed a ton of Brushdale kennel dogs that were prize one NA. I actually I don't remember seeing any that were not prize one NA. Not all were one twelves, but um there were a whole lot, certainly more than any other kennel. What do you attribute that to? Since I've been line breeding, I think the dogs overall have been better and and are doing better. They're easy for their owners. Those tests aren't hard for them. It's hard to describe, but I think I'm producing better and better dogs. So these more recent dogs, they're kicking butt in the test. They really are. I'm just giving people good raw material. And I'm I'm also, I think I'm doing a better job helping them prepare, raise those puppies up that first year to do well in that test. Because I'm relying on the owners. Um, there are some breeders that, you know, they, they take the dogs in and train them themselves and, and have run a test and, or have pros helping them with that. There's a variety of ways to do it to get good test scores, but I'm relying on the owners to run their dogs. I'm encouraging them to do it and then helping them prepare um, how to avoid some mistakes that are often made with the dogs, but also just producing better dogs, uh, better raw material. That's what I'm trying to do anyway. I mean, that's been the goal all along is to continually produce better and better and better dogs. And I think I'm starting to really see the results of all all these years of work. I agree. I, I think there there are two parts. Or my takeaway is that there are two parts to what you said. And, and the first one is the qualities that you're breeding for in the line of small monster landers that you're developing. And I think you're, you're developing a dog that wants to work for their, for their handler, for their owner, a highly cooperative dog that is just incredibly smart. And then the other part of that is the continued mentorship that you provide to the puppy owners. Correct. I think that's good assessment. I was really impressed with all the emails that you sent out before the puppies were were conceived. You sent out emails about this is what you can expect from the wait list and here's some of the homework that you need to start doing now. Here are some of the things that you need to think about 
when you are selecting your puppy when your turn comes up to select it. And then once the puppies were born, there was a lot of here's what the puppies are doing now. Here's why that's important to you. And here's what you need to be doing to complement it so that you are ready to receive this puppy at eight plus weeks old. Um, and then there were the continued emails and I think even a couple of phone calls after that, with, which were the check-ins. This is what you can expect of your puppy at 10 weeks old, at 12 weeks old. And I don't remember the exact frequency that you sent them out. But as I was reading through some of these pretty long, very detailed emails, I was thinking this is spot on. This is exactly what I'm seeing. I'm glad I'm reading about it now because now I'm that much more informed about what I can do to continue to shape this puppy and kind of unlock the potential that's already genetically built into it. I'm I'm glad you appreciated getting them and that they were helpful. They I'm were constantly they obviously they're form letters, you know. Uh, oh, oh, I don't I don't think you rewrite them ever for every every letter. <laughs> no, of course obviously. not. <laughs> but I will tell you that every single letter they are changed a bit. Uh I've learned something new or I've been asked questions or somebody's had a problem. Something leads me to add, delete, edit in some way. They're they're never the same. When you get your next puppy, there'll be differences. They'll, those letters will not be exactly the same as the first go around. Um, I saved all the old ones. So when I get the next <laughs> set, I'm going to compare them side by side and look for there the changes because I want to know what the breeder that's been doing this for 25 years is still learning. That's, that's very interesting to me. Constantly learning. I, I, I still order books. I still download. I'm, I'm still looking for new resources. Uh, you know, huge change for me was honestly, maybe five years ago with clicker training. And I, and I didn't make the change easily either. Just, didn't think I needed one more thing to carry around and had lots of excuses why not to do it. Then when I did decide to, to actually try working with the positive conditioning, you know, operant conditioning principles, and I, I just used the word <laughs> nice or yes instead of the click. So it took me a little while to come, my, even me, it took me a little while to come around to the whole idea and then once i actually committed to it and did it the way <laughs> followed the instructions it was sort of like getting my first cell phone where have you been all my life how ridiculous that <laughs> that i didn't do this before i have wasted so much time and effort and done things the hard way for so long in decades of doing this the the hard way you mean all I have to do is just manipulate this dog? It's funny, too, because people think, well, if it's just a marker, then I can use a word as a marker. Exactly. I tried that. Doesn't right. And I did the good. same thing, too. Right. And, and you know, people that have used the clicker will tell you exactly why it works, because the clicker is a lot more exact. The timing is if you're doing your job as a trainer or as a handler, 
The timing for the clicker is impeccable, and it sounds exactly the same every time you do it. Exactly. Right. Even if different people are using it. Exactly. It's, right. it's a wonderful communication tool. And it's such a it's such a simple it's such a simple thing, little you know one dollar piece of plastic that makes a clicky noise and a bag of treats. What you can do with that is remarkable. It took me a long time to figure that out. So I'm much better trainer now. Sure. I, I feel very I feel very confident if there was something I really wanted to train the dog that I could train them to do just about anything. I, now I do. I feel very confident with that. I agree, especially with a, with a small monster lander. I think the biggest challenge for me, one, one thing that I'm still learning as a trainer, is how to communicate to the dog what the correct thing to do is before trying to shape that that behavior. I think a lot of trainers, specifically coercive trainers, are easy or really good at telling the dogs what not to do. And Correct. eventually, yes. by way of deduction, the dog will figure out the right thing to do by learning, well, that wasn't right. You know, A wasn't right and B wasn't right. So C must be right. But being able, you know, learning how to demonstrate the correct behavior or the path to get towards the correct behavior is something that I think is probably easier with a smart dog than with a less smart dog. Don't know, because I never tried it with a stupid dog before. <laughs> uh, maybe you could find yourself an Irish Sutter and Oh, there it is. <laughs> there, see, there it is. And see how that works. But um oh just kidding. Irish Sutter owners. I, I am also not a breed snob, believe it or not. I would never suggest that small Munsterlanders are the greatest of all dogs, and I I like I like all dogs. They they I, I find them all fascinating. They all have purpose. They're what they were bred to do. I just find it amazing all the different things we bred all these different types of dogs to do, and they're all extremely good at what they were bred to do. A lot of times, there's a lot of people have difficulties because they're mismatching. You know, a herding dog is going to hurt a rat. A ratter's going to dig holes and, and rat. I mean, you, you can't take type out of a dog. The right. type of dog a dog is. You cannot breed out type. No matter how many times you cross them with other types, they will continue to display the traits of their type. We can't breed that out. I, I I just find that fascinating. I had no. an accident. I had an, an accident with a dog that came over, over land about five miles. His name Skittles. A border collie named Skittles showed up. And I managed to corral him and had him in the in the kennel. I was very focused on keeping him away from any of my three dogs that were in heat. Oh, my goodness. But I really hadn't planned on the, <laughs> the one dog, Bella, 
probably I don't know if this is G-rated, but we we always call her the my slut of dogs. <laughs> um, she would breed with any dog, any time. Didn't even matter if she was in heat. Oof. She once tied with a dog when she was six weeks pregnant. Go, I mean, <laughs> anyway, she she did uh, quite the trick, like a mountain goat, and got into him. And, and so we had two uh, borderlanders. They were adorable. Oh, I bet they're beautiful dogs. Yeah, they were. They were just adorable. A male and a female. They were roan. Colored like mom, but they had borderlander coats, border, border collie coats. They, but interestingly enough, they swim and point and search and herd and bark. <laughs> <laughs> you you almost had me there until you said herd. <laughs> yep, you do it. They they do it all. That might be the perfect uh, cowboy's hunting dog right there. The coat would be a little much. It's a lot. I mean, it's it's a lot of coat, let me tell you. I can't even think of that. I in you know, these these stories are great, but the timing is horrible because Skeet is probably at her most receptive right now. So she doesn't get to go outside without somebody. I look out all the windows to make sure none of the neighborhood dogs are in our yard before we, you know, before we let her out. And um, the last thing that I want to happen is, is something like that. I, I think the wind comes out of the West here. And I think the wind with three dogs and heat just managed to blow the scent Oof. five miles over outside of Bellevue. To their farm. <laughs> he showed he showed up. Skittles showed up here. And there's a whole long story with that, but he returned every time the dogs went in heat after that. Oh, I bet. Well, he knew what he was doing at that point. <laughs> and he he was very ill-mannered. He was very hard to catch. So you'd have to use one of the dogs in heat as bait to get him <sighs> locked up. Because he wouldn't come when he was called. And it, it ended up his his owner got so upset about this whole ordeal that uh, he was neutered. <laughs> and we haven't seen Skittles since. But well, I that... got a lot of really nice bottles of wine and some other I'm sorry gifts for <laughs> Skittles showing up. For uh, Skeet's first heat, I think we had every dog within at least a half mile of our house coming through our yard at some point dogs i had never seen before <laughs> coming through the yard sniffing marking everything yeah, and to I'm, pee all over your yard <laughs> oh my goodness i am running out chasing these dogs away i had to bear spray a dog we don't even have bears in indiana i bought bear spray for these dogs to get them to keep try to keep them away from from my yard and i only sprayed one of them but um i i can't have that <laughs> so especially with her first heat i mean she's she's still a puppy so it really couldn't risk that not with not with this little dog <laughs> so looking at the you know at the line that you're developing and predicting 
what, you know, what the dog is going to be able to do, or certainly, you know, trying to weed out what you don't want the dog to do. You just started DNA testing with your breeding females. Have you gotten any of the results back from that yet? I got emails today that results are in for some of the dogs, but I have not had time today. I just saw the email, so I haven't had time yet to come go and check on them. Um, but I, I actually did 19 dogs. All mine plus all the studs. Plus this little puppy Jet who's at my house that I hope will be a stud. And I have a 20th planned i just we don't have it done yet the goal is to have all the all of the dna samples done for all the dogs that the group is breeding to or probably will breed to i know the we only got ones our uh... the old dogs right yeah no point in doing that of course well, no, that's not really true, though, I suppose. There probably is some good information there. I think you just have to decide well, if it's it worth putting the resources into it. Right. If there, But see, if, if, like, their son is breeding and he's reusing, I really don't need dad. Sure. I don't think. Unless there's a reason to go back. I'm new at this, so I will see what we find out. Maybe what more information we might need. What's nice is I've got the I've got the geneticists and the people there that are willing to help to try to figure some of this out. I don't have to know everything. Uh, they sent an email that went through all of this different information about coat color. You know, it was like eyes rolled to the back of my head. There was you're kidding me. <laughs> I know you shared a lot of that, and I read through most of it, but I haven't swabbed Skeet yet and sent it off. I have the kit sitting on my table upstairs, but I, I, just, I just haven't done it just yet. I need to go ahead and do it and send that in because I'm interested in what Embark provides to us. I know that the service that they're offering right now I don't think anybody else is doing it to that level of detail. No, they are the only ones that do COI, coefficient of inbreeding. Right, which, which is, is important when you're line breeding, right? Right, Ex very important, which is really why I went there to begin with. But they offer a lot more. And the more I read, the more things i can imagine that may end up being very helpful um even something as simple as okay if you look back at the you know the history of our dogs you'll see several dogs i selected from litters and then ultimately rehomed because they didn't get big enough okay they didn't need the size requirement well, one of the things I could swab a young puppy, one of the things they test for is adult size. Right. Okay. I mean, it would instead of having to wait and see how, you know, big they get, I could potentially know that much, much sooner. Maybe they could, maybe I wouldn't even select that puppy. 
I schlob that puppy is, you know, tiny and send it off. So that that's one of the just, you know, a simple little thing size wise. Um, but there's the other thing that the health, we have a very, very healthy breed. But I think we could use this to maintain health. What if we identify something that has snuck in, crept into the breed before it starts getting spread around to the point that we start having puppies and, and you know, we can see problems to the point where then we're trying to play catch up. What if we can just head that off? Sure. Not and bring I think the dog at all. I read know? somewhere too that of the few health problems that we have, some of them, we don't even understand what the genetic markers are for those for those negative health traits. So I think having more tested dogs is going to give us more information and the, and the geneticists are going to be able to figure out what those genetic markers look like. Exactly. More data. They ask for help. There's right. a, I don't know if you went in and looked in the account, but there's a whole lot of questionnaires that they ask to get more data for the dogs they have samples for. You know, the more information they get, the better they're going to get at predicting, analyzing and predicting. So participating in that, it, I think it's good all around. It can't hurt. No, I, I agree. It, it can't hurt. And I think it's the responsible thing for a breeder to do anyway. If If the science and technology is there, then I think we should use it let the doctors help and mentor us through that process. And then what it does is it gives our customers, our prospective puppy buyers, a peace of mind in that I've done as much homework as I possibly could to provide you with the best puppy that I could possibly give you. Healthiest. Exactly. There, Healthiest, you know, there's right. a, lot of things, a lot of things we can't control. Things are going to go wrong. Things are going to happen. Puppies are going to get sick. It, it's just the way it is. Um, that's why you have health guarantees when you sell the puppies. Sure, sure. I can see a lot of different potential uses for this in the future. But mostly, I want accurate COIs. Going by pedigree alone... You know, the pedigree database, these these are just human, flawed human beings. Lots and lots of different people typing in lots and lots of information over many years. A lot of this information is Europe. So they're in Europe. There's big gaps. There's holes. There's errors. One of my own dogs is in the database and her name's misspelled. A misspelling might not sound like it's a big deal, but it is because... The information is only as good as the data. And one apostrophe out of place, one extra space, one letter off, and it's a whole different dog as far as the database is concerned. Right. And then they get a sign. You know, if you have two, <clears throat> a lot of ones I saw in there when I was actually just looking at dogs in the database was the middle name Von or Vom, V-O-N versus V-O-M. Same exact dog name otherwise, but there's a Vaughn and there's a Vom. Is it the same dog or is it two different dogs? 
And then it will have different progeny assigned to each one. Should they all be combined? Or are they really two different dogs? It's, I don't know. There's nobody alive today who does know. So there's there's things like that. <clears throat> and the other the other thing about just using pedigrees is that when we're relying on pedigrees, you're assuming that okay, here's your your dog, and its two parents give fifty percent each genetically, fifty fifty, and then each grandparent is twenty five. 25, 25, 25, and each great-grandparent is 12.5, and so on and so forth. But that isn't actually how it works. Right, but it's, we would never know that if beyond, if we're just looking at the paper, that's all we can see, if we're just looking at the pedigree, all, right? When we're calculating COI, we're calculating it on those hard percentages as if that's actual facts. But every sing, every puppy in the litter actually has a different combination of genes from their ancestors. It's not probable, but it is possible for a puppy to have zero genes from one of four grand, grandparents, as an example. So if you're ca- if you're just calculating COI on straight percentages across the board, you could be off wildly on a given dog on exactly what genes they have from their ancestors. So using um, the DNA is going to give us exact numbers on far more than the 10 generations that we normally use for calculating COI. And in those 10 generations, we have holes and we have errors and so forth. So I I think this is a much better way of doing it. It's not cheap, but it's also not expensive. This is something that's affordable. It can can be done. And it's worth enough to me that I am having 20 dogs tested right off the bat. And I'll keep adding and adding and adding. I'm also hoping we maybe can identify uh, the Jungklaus markings genes. I have those in my in my line. That would be interesting. Right. I've already spoken with Embark. They can't do, you know, we don't have enough dogs. We're not a, a big enough breed, so to speak, to have something, you know, custom done. But it, I'm just anxious to see because they do already do a lot of color stuff with color for the genes and it might be that it's already there that it's the same as in some other breed and we'll be able to just identify it because it's a tricolor uh from the spaniel okay that's where it comes from that's where the that's where the roan comes from no do you know what Jungklaus markings are no, no i don't <laughs> it's extremely rare um most people have never seen a dog in real life that has them. So Jung Klaus is the name of one of the founders of our breed. It, it His dogs must have had this way back when they invented them and they put Spaniel in there. Spaniels can come in three colors. Okay. Okay. Spaniels. Yep. Tricolors. Munsterlanders are traditionally a combination of brown and white. Right. But occasionally... 
they're born with these tan markings okay. on their legs. And if you look in the breed standard, you'll see it specified there. Yes. The tan markings on the head, the legs, the tail, the ears, and so forth. That's where the tricolor, it's tricolor gene that comes from the original spaniel in the breed. But it's now become so rare, it's practically non-existent. You you rarely see it. Sure. And I have yeah. those. I have the I have those genes in my dogs and I produce puppies that have markings. And I think it would be oh, wow. interesting if we can identify the puppies that have those uh that carry recessively. It's just thoughts that I that I have. Your dog's father carries. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was a puppy in your dog's litter with markings, and there was a puppy in this second litter with markings as well. Oh, wow. So she has a good chance of carrying because he would pass 50% on. And the mom also carried. So both of her parents are carriers. Is that Claire and Jackson both carry? Recessive genes for you and Klaus markings. So there's a pretty good chance that your dog also carries the genes for those markings. Yeah, no, I'm thinking if I'm trying to remember my ninth grade biology, whatever it was, I think that puts it at a 75% chance that Skeet carries those genes. That's correct. I got it right. I feel great about that. <laughs> <laughs> So it's interesting. It, that is really interesting. And another, you know, a cool thing about this, one of the things that I had planned on asking you when I wrote these notes out was that, you know, so Skeet will be bred sometime late July, early August, assuming that she conforms well in this test this coming weekend. And, um, and I still have to get her hips x-rayed. I'm pretty confident she'll do what well, she'll do well in both of those. The show will be I, I already I already know that from when she was a puppy. Right. Her her structure, her confirmation, she'll get a superior rating. Not worried about that at all. Right. The hips is a complete unknown. That's one thing we can know we just can't know and we can't breed for. Right. And after the show, you know, once we get once I get that title on her, that international champion title, which I think I should be able to get this weekend then you know after that is when we'll get her hips x-rayed and then from there it's a you know a phone call to you and say i think i've met all the criteria and um you know hopefully get that restriction lifted and in the past i would have had to ask you all right now at this point what should i be looking for in a stud for skeet you've seen her now twice what what should i be looking for with this capability to genetically test prospective studs, I almost don't need to ask that question anymore. I should be able to look at those genetic, look at Skeet's genetic results, look at those, you know, those potential studs genetic results and say, all right, these are the few that I need to choose from because this is the product that I'm trying to produce. I think you're trying to be overly scientific. <laughs> Well, that's the new breeder in me. 
<laughs> right. And that's it, it's not going to work. Okay. So your objective is to produce puppies that are better than their mom. Right. Our objective as a breeder is is to produce puppies that are better than their bit than the bitch. Okay. Without okay, so your first thing is you don't want to go the other way. <laughs> so right. The most important the most important thing is temperament. So that's the first thing you have to look for a dog that complements the temperament. If there's something, if you'd like, just Maybe you want a little more zip in the field. Uh, maybe there's something about temperament you want to improve with her. If that's the case, then you look for a male that has that quality. Okay. If you think she's just got the perfect temperament, then you want to look for a complementary dog, a dog that's basically the same, has the same type of temperament that she has. Because sure. temperament is highly heritable. You are going to get puppies that are a blend of the parents. And this is the way this works in 10 puppy litter. One will be a little more like dad. One will be a little more like mom. And the rest are all going to be pretty much 50-50 of mom and dad. You're going to, that's what's overall, you're going to get a, a, a nice blend of the two parents because Temperament is a highly heritable trait. We can predict it every time because you get what you breed to. So that's the first thing that you want to look at. Then you want to look at her structurally. Is there anything with her structure that could be improved? One of the things that's common in our breed are, is steepness in the shoulders. We've been working on that a long time. It's you only can make the most incremental small improvements with each generation. You never do, you can never, you can't make massive change. And when you're making changes at all, you can't change 10 things. You maybe can change one thing a little bit. You breed to correctness in order to preserve the breed. So that's what you're breeding to. So when I say breed to correctness, if your dog has, um, Angles are too, if they're over-angulated in the back, you don't breed to a dog that's under-angulated. You breed to a dog that's correct in the rear. Okay. You always breed to correctness. So the next, second thing you do after you've got your temperament figured out, what kind of temperament do we want in the stud dog? Then you're going to look for the structural things. And that includes size, too. Do I think my dog's a perfect size or would I like to increase the size a bit in these puppies or, or decrease the size in these puppies? You know, the bone, how much bone do we want? Is it about right in the bitch or do we want to make stronger bone or do we have a little too much bone? What about muzzle length? All those things. You look at your dog and you have to be, it's hard because you have to try to be objective. And actually take a good hard look. And all of the imperfect, there are no perfect dogs. They all have imperfections. So you look at those imperfections and then you rank them. And probably the only thing you're going to get to fix is one thing would be the most structurally significant. You were talking about jumping off the back of a truck earlier. 
The reason the dikes get hurt jumping off the back of the truck is because they're too steep in the shoulders. They don't have enough angulation in their shoulders, so they lack shock absorption when they come down on the front. And then not enough shock absorption, just beating on them over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Eventually, as dogs get older, they lose muscle mass and their muscles can't compensate for the structural deficiency. And then they break down. Then they then they get hurt. It's a common thing in our breed to be too steep in the shoulders. So I just taking a wild guess that might be something you can improve. But it's very hard to find a male with more angulation than the female you have. You might end up having about the same. But you, those are the kind of things you look at. Um, you're not going to be able to you know make massive changes or improvements. It's just incremental. It takes decades. Oh, absolutely. If you saw what Katie looked like, that's what I started with. I mean, wasn't much. Each generation, you can make a little bit better and better. You breed your dog, you produce a puppy that's a little bit better than she is, and you keep that puppy. And then you breed that puppy and you do the same thing. If you've done it right, eventually you have a dog that's substantially better than your first one was. That, and temperament is is what gives you, that's the key to everything with all of your hunting ability and everything else. That's all temperament-based. All dogs have approximately the same olfactory capability. There mm-hmm. isn't such thing as a dog with a bad nose, so to speak, or a good nose. They all can smell about the same. Those are other traits that we breed into the dog. Persistence. And they have to There's, care about what they're smelling, right? Right. That will not be a problem because that's part of type. We can't change type. Nope. There's You can't take the hunt out of these dogs. It's like you can't take the fur drive out of these dogs. No, there's plenty of fur drive in a small monster lander. I'm seeing that every day. She's only now just getting old enough to turn into a real true fur-driven little killer she i haven't obviously because i'm a i'm a bird hunter i I don't do a lot of fur hunting but um she's brought me a few possums i've got Mm -hmm. video of her crawling into a log to where i couldn't see her anymore for her to get a possum and bring it out to me you might not be hunting those things but she is always hunting those things oh yes Possums, mice, voles, moles. She hasn't, you know what, I'm not even going to say anything about the stinky ones because my poodle pointer picked one up last spring right before turkey season. And it was long after turkey season before he stopped smelling like one of, like a skunk. So I'm not going to jinx that with, with, uh, with skeet. We, we got a skunk about three days ago. <laughs> to, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a tip. The greatest product ever invented for skunk is that stuff called poof. I, I didn't try have that. It, have you seen it advertised? I don't know that I have, no. It's new. It, it's called, it's expensive. I'll tell you, it's called poof. It's sort of like nature's miracle. So I, you could you could eat it. 
Okay. I don't know so if I you, want to, but no, but it's 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 harmless, is what I'm saying. Okay. Um I got I got some of that uh for some of the other stinky stuff that they they do. Um pee mostly, but yeah, you know, puppy stuff is a lot of messy stuff. Um anyway, I bought some of that spray and for the this was the first time we've used it on the dogs for skunk. Unbelievably great stuff. Wow. Well, I wrote it down, so I'm definitely I, I took that note. There's when, a that's a tip for all your viewers right there. That's right. that's worth weight in gold for something that will take out skunk smell. It's gonna Oof. be valuable for somebody because when moose <laughs> got into that skunk and he ran by me with the skunk in his mouth. <laughs> we tried nature's miracle. We tried scouts honor. We tried the combination of Dawn dish detergent and a little bit of peroxide and a little bit of baking, uh, baking soda. And I don't remember oh, yeah, what the, the what the combination was. It, none of it worked. That dog slept out in the garage for several days. It wouldn't bring, would not bring him in the house. I washed him over and over and over again with all that stuff, following any recipe or set of instructions that I could find anywhere on the internet. <laughs> so there probably will be another time and poof is on the list. We, we are, we have become skunk removal experts because this is a <laughs> regular thing here. So a warm water Dawn dish soap. Wash the dog. Next, a product called D Skunk Shampoo. <laughs> That's the second bath. So first bathe them. You have you need warm water. First bathe them in the Dawn dish soap. Then bathe them in D Skunk. Towel dry. Spray with poof. And then towel dry again. Amazing. What's and you, you can spray it on your hand and spread it all over their face. It's really hard to shampoo the face and get it all off the face, and they always get skunked, yeah. you know, directly in the face. In the face. Um, have not found a way yet to get that smell out of the e collars or their other collars. So the straps of the e collar and and the regular flag collar just go in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> and and the plastic the, the actual e-collar just stinks to high heavens for months on end it just has to there's there's no getting it out i've tried soaking those things i've tried everything uh yeah, i tried leaving it, it out, out in the sun hoping that that would break it down that didn't help anytime his e-collar no. gets wet it smells like skunk again it reconstitutes every time they get just a little bit damp. Yes. Yep. The absolutely. dogs too. Yeah. Yep. So there, there, that, that's my one good tip for the day is that poof stuff. Well, I wrote it down and I will have that in the description <laughs> so people can reference that. So. <laughs> you should, you should, uh, you should get something from that company too for right product, right? <laughs> Maybe I'll reach out to poof. <laughs> I really hope I never have to use that again. You have a monster lander. Uh, it's it, it it's just 
bound to happen. I have some monster puppies out there that get a real thing for porcupines. That's worse. Do you have them in Iowa? No. Okay. These owners are in Michigan. Okay. And one dog in particular, Lucky, he wants to kill porcupines in the absolute worst way. Oh, boy. His owner has become an absolute pro at quill removal. So, yeah, any chance any chance he gets, he takes on those stupid things. It, it's You haven't had this happen to you yet, but once they actually get in, because possums just play dead, you know? They're no right. fun. But once that monster of yours gets a battle, an actual battle, like with a feral cat or a squirrel, usually squirrels come next. They, they, you know, then we're then we're on game on. Then we're doing raccoons, absolutely anything. They don't even care about rabbits anymore because rabbits rabbits don't fight. No, my poodle pointers brought me two cats, a couple of rabbits, a few possums. The skunk he did not bring to me. I don't think he knew what to do with that thing. He was just, he carried it away. I chased that dog for about a mile before <laughs> finally caught up to him. I'm trying to remember what else he may have caught. I don't, I can't well, think off the top of my a, head. He is a versatile breed, so. Oh, yeah. He's, he's got know? plenty of fur drive in him. I feel bad about the cats because that's probably somebody's pet. We don't like that they do this, and we do everything we can to try to avoid it. But a lot of the times, you know, you're out, the dogs aren't even right next to you. You're in heavy cover, grass. You can't you can't see what's there. You don't know it's there till the dogs already have it. Oh, yeah. It's too late. Yeah. You, you wouldn't believe this stuff that goes on here. I can't. We can't put it. <laughs> we can't. We can't put it. We can't post it publicly. <laughs> what goes on at Brushdale stays at Brushdale. <laughs> exactly. The Bambi lovers would be out for sure. Oh my. Michelle, we've been going for a long time. I have one more oh, question yeah. for you. Very selfish question, but um so obviously I have a deposit in for another breeding female. Which litter should I be looking for a female from Brushdale in order to get the best options and the largest pool of available quality studs? Why not I'm going to I'm gonna breed Annie to um, check import, that'll give you a lot of options because you'll be able to breed back right. uh, to, to the VCs and so forth. Lovic, Jager, some really nice dogs from the other side of the family. Is that um, is that the ZZ litter or is that? Yeah, it would be Z, what, ZZ, yep. I know I had um, originally. I'm also going to make sure a, a couple of those uh, males from that litter get directed towards the breeding pool. So I probably imported 20 male Munsterlanders, if not more, over the years. And of those, only four were good enough that I they were ever bred. And of those four, only two were truly exceptional dogs one from denmark one from the czech republic and those i'm going to have some um semen frozen on on those 
just for the future, for just in case. But they have contributed quite a bit uh, and done really good dogs. But that gives you that gives you more options for choices of males. It depends too on if you're going to stay within our breeding group or if you're going to go out and look at some of the dogs available through the SMCA that aren't in our breeding group. Although, frankly, I think we have the nicest stud dogs. I mean, there well, there are plenty of of Brushdale studs that have marketed themselves just off of the tests and titles that they've earned. I that's the owners doing that. The owners are making me look good. <laughs> I think there's got to be something to that dog before the owner gets it, though. It's still mostly the owner. That's the truth. the titles and the training at those levels that's so much the owner that it's like breeding to the owner not to the dog is i i can guarantee you that many many dogs i produce like those dogs all have siblings Uh, many of those dogs could have done just as well if not better they just don't have the right owners to take them there they're not, they don't have the time, the money, the inclination. It's just not their thing, you know. The owners are making me look good. The owners are doing these things with these dogs. Titles and so forth and test scores, they do have a place in the evaluation. They're a factor, but they aren't the factor. They're just one small piece of the puzzle. I think overall, just that a lot of the dogs are going out and testing in NA and are be, are doing very well is probably more indicative than the few that achieve the high level testing. Right. Do you think, well, NA is more of the dog and the more advanced tests are more of the trainer? Yes. Yeah, that's I would, the truth. I would agree with that. What, what you, what you gain as a breeder from using the dogs that have tested at the higher level is marketing. It's good for marketing your puppies. As far as choosing a sire for other reasons, it's a very small part. It, it really doesn't play into it. I use dogs all the time in breeding that don't have titles and big test scores. But I, I know the dogs. I know where they came from. And they're going to produce, I know what they're going to produce. That's what's important. That's what you're producing with them. Yager has a, a full brother named Buddy. I mean, you, you don't know these dogs, but no. he, he has a full brother. Buddy is a much better conformed dog, structurally. Equally as nice temperament. Everything else equally is great, but he doesn't have an owner that's even it's even possible for her to do all this testing and so forth. Okay. But he he is available as a stud dog. His genetics are fantastic. Awesome. Well, I wrote that one down too. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, I really appreciate it. I've kept you on almost an hour longer than I said I would. So That's uh that's all right. Mark's the only one who's going to really complain. Well, tell Mark I apologize. Um, How can people contact you if they want to learn more about Brushdale Kennel? Brushdale.com. And then what would you like to say to close this out? I am very flattered that you asked me to do this. Thank you very much. And 
I really appreciate everything you're doing with your dog. You're a great owner. You make me look good. What can I say? Well, I, I appreciate it. And, you know, she makes it fun. She's, she's a great dog. And one thing that we didn't tell people is that for the breeding females, at least out of your litters, you and your veterinarian pick the ones that you think should be breeders that are going to go to breeding homes. So, I mean, you and your vet picked a great dog for me and I appreciate that. Excellent. All right. Well, Michelle, thanks very much. Yep. See you this weekend. I hope you enjoyed episode number three of the woe post. Remember to head on over to patreon.com slash the woe post and sign up for our $3 monthly tier. Every little bit helps grow the show. You can contact me on Facebook or Instagram at the woe post, or you can always email me bill at the Stay steady and God bless.